We here at the Double Turn Podcast have put in a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of effort to bring you quality wrestling content and opinion and analysis. This show represents our two-year anniversary of bringing you the entertainment and sport that we love most. And with that, we get to talk tag team matches, and not just any tag team matches, our favorite tag team matches on the next installment of TDT's Classic Series on the Double Turn Podcast, which starts right now. J-Man, audience, world, I've really been looking forward to this episode because, well, on, on a multitude of levels, I realize that on constant occasions, on pay-per-views, on analysis of shows, of old wrestling, new wrestling, future wrestling, the art of tag team matches has almost been lost for the most part. However... When we find gems, especially just speaking for myself, I go bonkers for them because, uh, well, they're pretty special. And on this show, we are going to talk three of not only the best tag team matches in the last two decades, but three of the most enjoyable, just top to bottom. We'll get into it again. It's three of our greatest tag team matches of all time. Uh, Jorge jumped on to Through the Tables podcast to talk some tag team matches as well, but we wanted to save the, I'm sorry, was it was it 3T was on our show? I apologize. They collaborated. I was not there. That's why I had that backwards. The point is that these three matches, specifically I told the J-Man to not mention on that show and save for this very show, on our two-year anniversary installment of the Double Turn Podcast, that was another long-winded intro. I apologize. I was not on last week's show. Technical difficulties kept me from being on the show. I want to have a special shout-out to Tom the Thunderous Wizard from Hops and Box Office Flops for filling in for me, helping out the J-Man. Quick plug, we are going to be on Hops and Box Office Flops to covering the movie Dukes of Hazard. I don't know if that's going to be tomorrow or whenever. When it does drop, we'll let you know. We'll promote it. They'll promote it. It's going to be fun. Another plug for them. Again, hops, box office flops. They talk movies. They drink beer. It's a great time. So I just wanted to put that out there. The Tom filled in for me last week. It was late. It was last notice. It was late notice. It was last minute. That's what I mean. So I thank him for helping out the J-Man. With all that said, J-Man, how are you, sir? Dude. I'm good, man. It's it's good to see you. It's, uh, we've had we've had a bit of time apart from one another. I'm not gonna uh, lie to you. Over uh, it's, what's it, what's it been? Two weeks. It's been about two weeks, man. But you know, we we usually communicate near. I say almost every day, and it's a nice little gap of time where we just took a break. You know, Labor Day weekend was the last time you were on, and yeah. Yes, so uh, full disclosure, I went on vacation right after that show. It was one of the greatest trips I've ever been on in Alpine, Arizona. Um, I actually felt like I was breathing real oxygen 
that was a that was a nice change of pace. Not that we don't not that we don't breathe real oxygen, you know, every second of every day. But when you're in that type of environment, you just feel like you're actually breathing oxygen. It's nice. So it was a nice little reset button. It was a three day weekend. I came back. I had every intention of doing the show last week, which was AEW's All Out for 2020. I will tell you very quickly that I love the revival. We're going to talk about the revival on this show. I realize they're called FTR in AEW. Um, I loved their match. I know a lot of people said it went too long. I don't want to make this an AEW all-out show because you guys covered it. All I will tell you is um, that match was good. The women's match was good with Thunder Rosa. And there was a lot of very weird booking, but it may pay off in three months. So I'll give it a chance. I realize that's probably me being an AEW apologist. I don't care because they're mostly doing good programming. It was a weird pay-per-view. It was not one of their best pay-per-views. Hopefully they'll do something better because hopefully this will lead to something else. Whereas a lot of times in WWE, you know when a pay-per-view means absolutely nothing because they're setting up a pay-per-view in a month. AEW doesn't have that track record yet. So if this is leading up to something, I will give them a pass. On this show, we are talking. Oh, man. I got to tell you, I rewatched these, these matches these are, today. The, 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 let me just say, they're not even barn burners. This is, this is so far past barn burners here, ladies and gentlemen. Like, these are bona fide classics. So, bona fide classics. So... Very briefly, tag team wrestling, to me, psychology-wise, when it's done right, is the best. When I look back at my time at watching WWE and WCW growing up when I first became a wrestling fan, yes, obviously I paid attention to the main event and the guys that were the world champions and even the mid-carters or people that entertained me, but you know what? You know what I looked forward to the most? The tag team matches. Because when done right, you are legitimately putting four guys, because that's normally a tag team match, is two teams. So in this case, four guys in a ring. They have to tell a story. They have to have adequate pacing. They have to have good ring psychology. They have to be able to work well together. They have to ebb and flow with the actual, you know, pacing that they're doing in the match. And they have to make it look good with less space. Now, when tag team wrestling is bad, it's really bad because it's more noticeable because there's more people in there. So, for instance, I give myself an example. I always loved Harlem Heat matches. I realized Stevie Ray was a bit clumsy, but I will always remember the matches between, like, Harlem Heat and, like, the Outsiders, stuff like that. Um I could go on and on because I'm the WCW savant of the show. I will not. Just know I love tag team wrestling when it's good. This is a show that's dedicated to three matches for tag team wrestling. I'm excited. J-Man's excited. You should be excited. Quick plug for our show because this is our two-year anniversary. I've totally forgotten what episode we're on. But basically, here's what I will say. If you want to listen to this show or any other show that we do, whether it's our TDT's Classic Series me sounding like Darth Vader, me flipping out that Kofi Kingston actually became a main eventer, J-Man just defending weird stuff all the time. If you want to go back in our archives for anything, anything at all, you can check out the Double Turn Podcast. 
on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, CastBox, and the Anchor app. Two weeks off, and I still got it. I know. That's all I'm going to say. So proud uh, of you. You can also check out our socials, the Double Turn Podcast, J-Man, slaying the game. As always, he runs our account, the Double Turn Podcast. One and only J-Man 19, Ross the Real Boss 85. Those are our personal accounts. Again, Message us, give us ideas, feedback, anything at all. We love seeing it. We love hearing about it. You can also follow me on Twitter at BossRossTDT. This show, as we do always, we go in chronological order, but I will list the matches right now of the, uh, of the three tag team matches that we are going over today. Yeah, because we haven't talked about them yet. No, and this is a special episode in which we saved in the back of our mind making sure that we were going to talk about them on this show. We have NXT TakeOver Toronto 2016, which when we were looking at tag team matches to go over, I told Jorge, if the two out of three falls, if the two out of three falls match between DIY and the Revival are not on this list, I'm going to throw a fit because it's an awesome match and it's going to be talked about on this show. We also mentioned that there was a nice little match almost 20 years ago between the following four people, Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit as a team against the two-man power trip, which if you don't know who that is, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin as a heel and J-Man's boy, or ya boy Triple H. Yes, those two were a tag team back in 2001. It was glorious. It is one of the exceptions to the rule of two singles wrestlers that either hate each other or have never tagged together that I completely buy into. And in the last match, yet again, another example of someone I will give a pass to, Hell in a Cell 2018, which will forever be known as the night where Roman Reigns and Braun Strowman ended in a no contest. However... This show had one of the greatest tag team matches I have ever seen in my life. Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose challenging Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre for the Raw Tag Team titles. Now, let me, let me just go on a quick tangent on this match. Sure. In a positive way. Ross and I have been doing this show for two years, and we've now done it for, I believe, this is now the 128th time. So, you know, ha-ha. <laughs> um, this match, the, the McIntyre Ziggler Ambrose Rollins match, is so special to us. Like this match is there there are special matches to us, but this one, and I don't mean to go ahead and like speak for you, Ross, but I'm pretty sure I I, I know that you, you feel this way. This match is special to us because this was the first pay-per-view that him and I ever reviewed together as the double turn. We did our very first episode a week and a half after SummerSlam in 2018, and then we did a couple of episodes and then we went to go to what's the name of that restaurant down here in Mesa? Uh, was that RTO Sullivan's? RTO Sullivan's, great Irish pub. Shout out to them. Good food, great stuff. And the fact that they have the WWE Network is super killer. Not a lot of bars and restaurants happen to carry the WWE Network. So it was very cool that we were actually get a, able to get a booth and be able to have Hell in a Cell playing in the background. My point is, Ross and I we're looking forward to this pay-per-view because there was a lot of craziness going on. Braun Strowman was crashing in his money in the bank contract and all that good stuff. We knew that this tag match was going to be good, but as soon as this match got started, 
we were in for a goddamn treat. Like, it, this is, this was unbelievable. And Ross and I were marking out at our booth at RTO Sullivan's because we could not believe what we were witnessing in front of us. You know, it, it was just one of those, it was a genuine moment that wrestling fans all over the world said, hold up. We haven't seen a tag match that good on the main roster in WWE in a long time. And by the way, credit to the Usos and to the New Day for having a glorious rivalry between themselves. And by the way, I mean, I mean it when I say glorious rivalry. They had some matches in 2018 and 2000, or excuse me, uh, 2017 that were absolutely stellar. And as good as they are, they, they, they were not, they were that just a smidge off what we saw at uh, Hell in a Cell in 2018. By the way, I'd like to go ahead and rectify something right now because Ross forgot to call me out, so I'll call myself out on it. I said the pay-per-view wrong, which I, I put on, on social media. It was Cal Ash of Champions 2018. Uh, it was Hell in a Cell. I take full responsibility for that. I am the encyclopedia of this podcast, and I messed up for the first time in two years. Damn. Well, I don't know if it's the first time in two years, but what I will say is when I looked on the WWE Network, because I've been busy and J-Man's been busy and we've been in the throes of trying to get hyped for this show while not like it's, it's, it's been a long week, everybody. So I went on the WWE Network because I, because I normally watch the matches day of the show. That way they're most fresh in my mind. Good to go. Even though I do watch matches all the time. Anybody who knows me, I watch WCW Nitros for fun. So, um, I went back and watched this match, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the text Jorge sends me. It says Clash of Champions 2018. So I go on the WWE Network, and there's Clash of Champions 2016, Clash of Champions 2017, and Clash of Champions 2019. So my first thought is, oh, WWE scrubbed this pay-per-view from the network, and I have no idea why, thinking that I messed up. Then I go back and I go, okay, maybe Jorge meant Clash of Champions 2016 or 17 or 19. None of the above. So then I call him and I go, hey, Jorge, um, there is no Clash of Champions 2018. And he pauses. And then he says, oh, yeah, my bad. And I was like, did you mean Hell in a Cell 2018? He's like, I sure did, because Hell in a Cell took place in September of that year instead of its normal October. So you sort of get a pass, but yeah, you were wrong, really. I mean, you were, I, I will be first to admit it. You were basically telling people to go watch a match on a pay-per-view that didn't exist. That's I, all I was trying say. to tell them to watch a pay-per-view that absolutely did not exist. And after yeah. that, I apologize yeah. if I've ruined your week by not being able to watch this absolute gem of a match that we're going to go ahead and talk about in about 30 minutes. I but apologize. it's okay. But it's okay because someone will reference a WWE pay-per-view called Stomping Grounds or Great Balls of Fire, and there will be people that will say, I don't believe you that that's the name of the pay-per-view. <laughs> or so. Roadblock, Roadblock, end of the line. By the way, yes. to, to piggyback off of this, and I swear we're going to get started here in just a second, and I take full responsibility for what's going on, but when Ross says that he watches WCW Nitros for fun, <laughs> I'm not kidding, he actually does. Ross and I 
because we're so we're we're so tight. We're, we're I mean we've been we've become essentially as close as brothers over the last couple of years. Like I, I genuinely mean that. We 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 appreciate one another. We love each other, and we're, we're tight, and we respect one another every facet. Um, when we first got started with with the podcast, I had the network, and then Ross uh, and I would use my network to go ahead and watch the the WWE pay per views when we were back at the studio, and then. I got rid of the network and he got the network. So he let me borrow it. So when, when I watch the network, I'm using Ross's login. And every single time I go on there every week to get ready for TDT's classic series, even though Ross already finished his WCW marathon like eight months ago, <laughs> there's still a random episode of not just WCW, but WCW 2000 every single time. <laughs> Every week, I believe. Uh, I believe this week I was hitting up the months leading up to the reboot in 2000, back when uh, Bischoff and Russo took over during the most hilarious part of 2000, because there was no direction, and then they just threw stuff against the wall, and then it sucked, and then it started to get better, and then they died. So you know, it's the way it is. But no, it's it's totally true. I uh, I watch Nitros and Thunder for leisure. Yes. That's the kind of guy you're dealing with. All right, let us let us jump into the show as we go in, chrono- in chronological order uh, to help kind of lead up. I realize that most of the time we do this with feuds because it helps build the separate ports of the feuds. But when we do these type of things, I still like to do it uh, in historical cons in in historical context. Excuse me, uh, from older wrestling to wrestling that Jorge and I grew up with to even the most recent pass to basically the present. So Exactly. So the first match we are going over is a match from the May 21st, 2001 Raw is War from the Compact Center in San Jose, California. Man, what a time. Because by this time, WCW was no longer a company because their last show was... March of 2001. Yeah, two months prior. So this was right after that company went out of business. Correct. Um, I believe the invasion did not start until Another month? Yeah, Yeah. another month. Maybe like three weeks? So basically this was leading up to, I forget which pay-per-view. Oh, they had just finished Judgment Day. This was the night after Judgment Day. Yes. Okay, thank you. So... They had just finished Judgment Day. The two-man power trip, your boy Triple H and Stone Cold Steve Austin had all had all four titles until Stone Cold Steve Austin did not help Triple H win or retain the Intercontinental title. But then later that night, Triple H bailed out Stone Cold Steve Austin for him to retain his WWF title. He pulled a so, Bailey. He did. So as much as I'm not really liking that Bailey Sasha storyline, at some level, I understand what they're trying to do, incorporating certain storylines. I know that uh, I know that Bailey's promo was reminiscent of the one Eddie cut in the ring. Uh, I believe that was with when what he and Mysterio were in that little thing going on. Yeah, I don't remember. Back in '05, when he turned on Ray, um, when he finally turned on Ray. Yes. Um, when he not excuse me, I don't know if it was when he turned on Ray or when he went ahead and admitted that Dominic was his son. 
Okay, but fair enough. He was fair right enough. in the midst of it. It was when okay. Eddie was going full 100% heel. So the so this is right after Judgment Day, two thousand one. Uh, there's still there's still three belts with this team. Remember, Stone Cold Steve Austin had turned heel at this point. He was like kind of buddy buddy with Triple H, and even though he wasn't like aligned with Vince McMahon, he wasn't like hating him at this point. They were kind of like. Simpatico, if you know what I mean. So, like, they were okay. So, the entire night is building up to Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit getting a shot at the tag team titles. Now, this is old school Raw when essentially they would take one episode of Raw, build the entire show around the main event, and then pepper it with everything else. That was essentially the formula they went with. I know everybody complains about we'll remember that era where they did the 20 minute promo every time and blah 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 that's that's a formula some of them worked some of them don't so yes. this is the good thing about the attitude attitude era and i don't mean to interrupt is the fact that normally whenever they opened the show with the 20 minute promo it ended up being really really good because this was basically the goats i mean you had austin rock jericho triple h Foley, Taker, you name it, they were there. So it worked. As much as we can complain about it, it actually worked. So Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit. Uh, Benoit had only been in the company for a little over a year. And Chris Jericho had been in the company for a year and a half. Because he came over in August of 99. Yep. So like, okay. uh, I want to say 19 months at this point, yeah. Okay. So... They had both, you know, made their mark in the company, but, like, they had really not garnered any wins over big-time talent by this point. Because Jericho didn't win the Undisputed title until, what, 02? No, um, so this was in May. He ended up winning the Undisputed title of December that year okay. at Vengeance. But the only main event run that he had had is, um, do you remember in 2000? when he beat Triple H because um, Earl Hebner uh, did the fast count. So that was that was Jericho's moment up until this point. Who, by the way, uh, was also the referee in this match. So uh, this was the back and forth of Hebner being involved in a lot of Triple H matches. Um, and then I believe he ended up getting fired by the McMahon-Helmsley faction at that point and then was brought back. Again, I have my timelines all messed up. The entire point is, the tag team titles are with these two son of a guns who are aligned with the boss. They've got all the gold, or at least they did have all the gold until the night before. And here comes Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit. And they did a really good job of telling two different stories, which is Jericho and Benoit. They're excited. They're hungry. They're motivated. This is their chance to win the tag team titles. Whereas Triple H and Stone Cold are kind of fighting with each other the whole night. They're like, oh, you screwed me out of my belt. Oh, you should have been there. Why didn't you help me more in my match? And they're not really, like, on the same page. And then we get to the match, right? So they're telling the story of this very dysfunctional team and this really motivated team. And wouldn't you know it, the dysfunctional team is on all cylinders for most of this match because, at the end of the day, they told the story 
that Triple H and Stone Cold Steve Austin as a team, nine times out of ten, were going to beat the technically more gifted Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit team. So they were telling the story of, well, they're heels, and they're not really out-wrestling them because the babyfaces are out-wrestling them. But then, as per usual, a thumb to the eye, and they're right back in control. And I want to point this out now before I forget. JR and Paul Heyman as an announced team, vastly underrated. I realize it was not for very long because they tried the thing because it was like, Heyman did the Alliance announcer thing, but he was also kind of there before he turned heel and did that. So they were trying out different things. So they had JR and Paul Heyman doing commentary. And the reason I like it is because Paul Heyman is so boisterous in general, and JR is so passionate that unlike the King, who can't really overpower JR, Paul Heyman, as a heel announcer, or even as a side babyface announcer, can kind of put JR in check a little bit, because there are times where JR gets a little too JR-ish for the rest of us, even during this time. And so I kind of liked the counter. It's the same reason I say Michael Cole's best partner to me was JBL, because he counterbalanced him. So I have to get that out there. They're underrated, and I loved them calling this match. So as we get through the match, it's, well, Austin's in control, and then he struggles, and then he tags out, and Triple H is like, all right, I got to do this. Then Triple H gets in trouble because, again, Jericho and Benoit are the better wrestlers. They're more in sync. They're not as distracted. They don't have the elements of what happened the night before. So... Now it's like, oh, gosh, the baby faces are getting their asses kicked for most of this match, and this other team, they can't get along. It's so frustrating. And then I have to say this. The baby faces, it was like, just when you thought they were going to flip the switch, they don't. And then they do the spot in the corner where Triple H has got the octopus hold and he's got the arm next to the rope and Earl Hebner does that violent kick where he almost falls over. And it just, it's, it's like, this felt like a big moment because they did a good job building it. Now is the match itself like the most incredible thing in the world? No, but I will argue that with the build the psychology with the pacing with the story they told as a whole it makes this match a big moment which makes it a very intriguing tag team match if you just do this match as a main event of raw without building it up without the four guys involved without the commentary without the events without the pacing without the psychology without the staging without everything that goes into a raw match in 2001 it's another main event on Raw. But that's not what this was. And that's what makes it awesome. Um, the one key thing that we haven't even discussed yet, <clears throat> which I think is important, so important, such an important detail for one particular human being. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a Triple H mark, ladies and gentlemen, but this is the match. This is the match that it happened. Everybody knows that 
Triple H has torn his quad in his career twice. He tore his right quad and he tore his left quad. This was the first time he went in with the sledgehammer. He hits Jericho when he's got Stone Cold in the walls of Jericho. And he hits him and the quad just tears instantly. Right? And so you can tell immediately because Triple H is essentially limping. He can't walk on both legs. He's only walking on one. Jericho knows what's going on. Stone Cold knows what's going on. Benoit, Hebner, everybody knows what's going on, and they're trying to work on the fly. For some god-awful reason, Triple H tells Y2J, it is okay for you to put me in the walls of Jericho on top of the announce table to make this crowd go bananas. And ladies and gentlemen, you know, Ross hits the points of the pacing, the performers, the storytelling, the announcing from JR and Heyman. Let it also be known, the crowd in San Jose was lit to a T that night. And they just went nuts. They went nuts for Jericho and Benoit, as they should have. But, I mean, let it be known now, let it be known now, here and at this moment, that at this moment, if you didn't think Triple H was one of the toughest SOBs in pro wrestling history... You were in for a treat because not only did he finish the match, and actually he he did some a couple he did a couple of other moves. He went ahead and pushed out. He he got pushed out of the way by Jer by, by Benoit. Excuse me. He gets tackled to the ground, and he still walks off. I mean, he he got carried by 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 Steph and by Hebner at the end of the match, which is totally understandable. I mean, the dude couldn't walk toward quad, but he's gone. And he comes back eight months later from an injury that to, to, the, to that point in 2001, if you tore your quad and you tore your ACL and you tore your Achilles, you were never going to wrestle again. You were never going to do any type of sport ever again in your career because you just couldn't. Triple H was the first to come back and he comes back stronger than ever in January of 02. And, it's, and, and he comes back arguably even better, Ross, in January 2002. My point is that this match is so incredible for so many different reasons, and then you watch what happens to Triple H, and it makes you click and think, oh, my God, Triple H is amazing. And, oh, my God, Jericho is amazing. And, oh, my God, for all the sins that he committed, Chris Benoit was amazing. And Stone Cold Steve Austin is perhaps to many, including myself, the greatest wrestler of all time. This tag team match. Oh, boy, howdy. <laughs> I got him singing it. Or I got him saying it, everybody. Listen, it, it's not often that I, make, that I say that phrase. It's not often that I go ahead and drop a boy howdy on TDT. But ladies and gentlemen, if you have never in your life watched Stone Cold Steve Austin and Triple H defend the WWF tag team titles against Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit on the May 25th edition of Monday Night Raw in 21st. the middle of the summer. May, May 21st, excuse me. You need to because just because it'll, just because it'll satisfy you. It'll, it'll satisfy you from a professional wrestling standpoint in a way which not a lot of wrestling matches can Ross, I looked this up, and you know, uh, it's Meltzer, right? And of course, it's Meltzer. But let me let me let me just be very clear. 
This, this was a TV match, ladies and gentlemen. This was not WrestleMania. This was not SummerSlam. This was not the Rumble. This wasn't a pay-per-view at all. This was the night, a summer night. Well, not a summer night, but a late spring, right before Memorial Day night in 2001, on a Monday night Raw, after Judgment Day. Ross, would you like to know what Dave Meltzer rated this match? Uh, he probably gave this four and a half. He gave this four and three quarters in 2001. Yep. And well, I look, watched, yeah. Look, as I stated before, if you don't have the buildup, if you don't have the setting, if you, do, again, this is what, what is it, like a 12-minute match or a 15-minute match? It was 15 minutes at best. It was 13 minutes and 55 seconds. Yeah. I just looked it up. Look. If you if you were to tell me that one of the best tag team matches of all time went 13 minutes and 55 seconds, I would tell you it probably needed more time. But from the moment this match started until the finale, which I'll get to in a second, I I was I was entrenched. I had to watch it. I could not miss a moment of this. It was must see wrestling, which yeah. by the way is an element that is missing from most of the product nowadays. Now, I will say this. Uh, love Stone Cold Steve Austin's heel theme. Love it. It's different enough for it to be like, oh, God, it's this Austin. I can't cheer for this Austin. And then uh, I had forgotten how terrible Chris Benoit's old music was. <sighs> it was horrible. It's so bland. Like, yeah. before Benoit actually got, like, a personality like three years later when they finally changed his music, or maybe it was sooner than that. But yeah, this was the time when he was just, I'm Chris Benoit. I'm the Crippler. I came from WCW. I wrestle. Like he was, uh, admittedly, he was a little boring. A little but, bit. Yes. A little bit. Which little is the bit. reason why he didn't get pushed that often. Well, it's one of the many reasons. But yes. the, uh, the, I, the, the point is, the other thing you, you forgot to mention was the end of the match in which everything's going on in the ring. Like, Stone Cold hits a stunner. You think the match is over, and then there's a save. And then Jericho hits hits him, or I should say, Benoit hits the headbutt off the top rope. Hebner's not in position. You're like, why is this match not over? All these finishers, but people are not kicking out of everything. So then... Jericho hits the walls of Jericho. And then Triple H limps back into the ring. I'm like, oh my gosh, because you're right. I forgot to mention that, which is he tore his squad, which is why he wasn't there for the alliance angle, because he was hurt. That would have been a very different alliance invasion angle if Triple H would have been there. I would have been interested to see the types of things they could have done with him there. But he comes in, he's limping. He's got to do the spot where he's about to save Stone Cold Steve Austin again because he's already saved him once in this match. And then he hits he hits Stone Cold Steve Austin with the sledgehammer. And you're like, oh, no. It's over. They're going to lose the titles. Triple H is going to be beltless. And then satisfaction. Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit win the WWF tag team titles from the two-man power trip and 
I'm under the assumption that the plan was probably that Triple H and Stone Cold Steve Austin were probably going to do a program together. Triple um, H was going to do uh, – he was going to be the babyface protecting World Wrestling Federation. He was going to do what uh, what The Rock ended up doing. That's why they called The Rock back. Uh, yes. So, But in some ways it worked out better that it was The Rock – but I still would have liked to have seen what Triple H would have done in that angle. Right. It, it is it is a missed opportunity, but at the same time, there there is the argument that Triple H didn't really fit. And when he came back, that, that was over, and the moment ended up just being fine with what they did with it anyway. So, yeah, um, I, I agree with you. I think that because of the history and the moment from WrestleMania 17 with The Rock, it ended right. up making a lot more sense, even though, to be fair, if anything, Rock should have been on WCW because of what Vince McMahon did to him at WrestleMania 17, when you really think about it. But um, overall, um, yeah, I mean, let me say this right now. Just let me get it out there. This match is beyond a banger. Like, this is so far away from what is considered a banger these days. I watched this on – today's Thursday. I watched this Tuesday night, and I was actually mad that it ended so quickly because it only went 13 minutes and 55 seconds. I was pissed. I was like, seriously? This is this is definitively much different than the yeah. other two matches. Oh, now, so I different. say that. Now, here's the thing, though. Here's what I will tell you about this match – that I do see in the other two matches we're about to talk about. And that is if you, once we get into the other two matches, agree or disagree, there are elements of things that you and I and people that listen to the show and people that enjoy wrestling for more than just high spots and finishers and all that other stuff of look at what, look at the positioning of the moves. Look at the sequencing of moves. That's going to be a big thing for the next match that we talk about. It's is so sequencing perfect. without it being contrived. Yeah. It's okay. a big thing, especially in this match. Everything was fluid. Yeah. And the little pieces that they did, even though they were set pieces, you couldn't really, like, it didn't feel like it was, okay, move, 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 move. It felt very natural. Yes. So And so when we get into the two out of three falls match, which we're about to talk about next, mm-hmm. that is going to be something I'm going to hammer exclusively in that match. So is there anything else you want to mention about this uh, Raleigh's War 2001 match in which Jericho and Benoit took the WWF titles from the two-man power trip? Honestly, just if you have not had the blessing and pleasure of watching this match, do yourself that favor and do it because it's it's thoroughly fantastic. Um, shout out to Triple H again. I can't stress it enough, dude. Torres quad mid-match and went another five minutes. Like, that's that's unheard of, dude. That was unheard of in those days. Um, and and oh, here's the thing. Don't, nobody will make a, 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 a mud hole stop more entertaining than Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, he was stumping mud hole, stomping mud holes, excuse me, on – everybody that night and it was just so you know it's funny stone cold was a heel right and 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 he was doing heel characteristics and even though he was wrestling a very fast pace because this is one there was 
here was the great thing about this match. This was a really high, fast-paced match. But it, it, it wasn't – but Stone Cold still wasn't doing babyface moves. Like, you know, because it, it was so – It wasn't out of control. It no, was it wasn't. Fast-paced, but the heels were still doing their yeah. dastardly tricks, and the babyfaces were trying to out-wrestle them. And right when you thought that the heels were going to win the match, the babyfaces just triumphed. That's exactly. the way that was supposed to go. Right. And the one thing I will end on is this, is this match, if you watch it, if you had no idea what the stipulation was, you would have thought that this was a no-holds-barred match. But then when you think about it again, look at it closely. They still kept it within the rules. Yeah, there was a lot of outside interference, but it was outside interference when Earl Hebner legit wasn't looking, and they made it look so good. Whereas you watch – I am not. I don't want to take a shot, but it's not taking a shot, but it's just – I think it's a – honest criticism if you look at what aew does they just let things slide and in this match it within the storytelling earl hebner legitimately quote unquote you know within the storyline had no idea what was going on behind him triple h brought in a chair earl hebner was completely away from him that he had no idea that that chair got brought in right so it was just it was just so fascinating it was it's storytelling at its finest and that's it i'm done i'm done this match is incredible our next match is from nxt takeover toronto from 2016 it is a two out of three falls match between diy which for those of you that don't know who diy is that would be the team of johnny gargano and tommaso Ciampa, versus the revival who were the current nxt champions at the time that would be Scott Dawson and Dash Wilder, who are now known as FTR on All Elite Wrestling, and who recently became the AEW uh, Tag Team Champion. So good for them. Um, before we go far into this, um, this crowd was unbelievable. Um, this match is unparalleled. And I said this before, I'm going to repeat this. The sequencing in this match is one of the most top-notch things I've ever seen in my life. Now, I have to harp on this too. DIY's music was absolutely atrocious. I'm sorry, that was the most generic, like, woo, we're jobbers, yeah! Like, that's, like, I don't remember it being that sucky, I don't remember it being that terrible, but apparently it was. I understand that it was, nothing's going to be handed to you, so you do it yourself, hence DIY. Whereas, uh, how long had the Revival been the Revival? Because I remember this team when they were the Mechanics. The Revival had been probably maybe like under a year is when, because um, remember, this was now on their second NXT title reign because mm -hmm. they beat American Alpha for the title's after NXT TakeOver Dallas. That would be Chad Gable and Jason Jordan, for those Correct. of you that forgot. Yes. yes. Man, Jason okay. Jordan never never recovered from that neck injury, man. That's crazy to me. That, that I don't know. sucks. Would you rather have a neck injury where you can't wrestle again or be called Jordy Gable? <laughs> I That's mean, a good I, question. I mean, hey, I know what hey, Shorty Gable, Shorty Gable went ahead and had a freaking classic with, with King Corbin – in the finals of King of the Ring last year. So 
look, I'm telling you this now, okay? No, no so you make a good point. You make a good point. Uh, probably an neck injury. You want to do something with Otis and make him like a sideshow clown? Great. I'm telling you now, if you pair Chad Gable and Tucker Knight, mm. it will work. They're mm. both ex-NCAA wrestlers. It will work. This is true. Any, anyway, so two out of three falls. Um, DIY, of course, the favorites with this crowd because this was their chance to win the titles against the Revival, who I think people respected. I'm not going to say people found them boring. They are anything but boring. What I'm saying is that I think people just wanted to see Gargano and Ciampa win because they were just the crowd favorites. Uh, proper proper uh, crowd backing a babyface team. I was okay with this. True, and not to mention, I think that instead of me saying that the revival was boring. They were just really, really good old school heels. Like they've been very good old school heels. And I think that's what their mantra really is. Like that's what they've been wanting to do. That's been, that's what yes. they've been wanting to represent for the last five years. Correct. Yeah. So, um, by the way, this was at the air Canada center. This is where, uh, this is where the Raptors play. This is where the, uh, uh, this is where the Maple Leafs play. Or at least it was called Air Canada. Now it's called Scotiabank. I think Scotiabank is what it's called. Arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but that is where they play. So big arena. Uh, let's see here. It seats. About 20? Right. But, I mean, they blocked it off and they had a full crowd. They had almost about 13,000 people for that show. Yeah. Um, SummerSlam had more because they opened up more seats on purpose, which makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So um, just to give you an idea – how great this match is. Um, now, take this with a grain of salt. I understand. Um, WWE.com named this match as the match of the year. I mean, I could see that. And by the way, I said SummerSlam. I meant to say Survivor Series. That was Survivor right. Series weekend. Right. My apologies. Right. So, when, okay, when so something... that was the match of the year to them in 2016. Correct. There were some barn burners in, in 2016, ladies and gentlemen. I agree. So what I'm saying is, and I, I don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but what I'm saying is when the company is putting it on that level, mm-hmm. you know it's special. Yeah. So here's what I will say. This match was essentially another example of the story being told was nine times out of ten, the Revival are probably going to win this match. However, this is a two out of three falls match. Anything can happen. Uh, Corey Graves and um, was it Tom Phillips, right? It was, yes, because Morrow had moved over to SmackDown at that point. Yes. So um, I enjoyed Tom Phillips and Corey Graves on commentary. I thought they were a nice mix for each other. Um, I will get into some of the pitfalls that happened at Hell in a Cell. I will not get into that now. Um, I'm more of a fan of a two-person booth. I don't think I'm in the minority when I say that. There are few occasions where three-person booths work. So in this case, a two-person booth for NXT, they were good at setting the mood. They were good at storytelling during the match, but they kind of let the match do the storytelling for them, and they kind of peppered in their commentary. I liked that. I appreciated that. Figured I'd throw that in. But this match was essentially, okay, the Revival are going to take them down, and if this was a one-on-one or if this was a one-fall match, 
okay, the Revival are probably going to get a win. Now, there were some false finishes early. That's fine. There always are. And then just out of nowhere, Revival hit Shatter Machine, which fight me if you think there's a better double team move right now in wrestling. Fight me if you think there's a better one. Which the pisses me off. Is awesome. Yes, which pisses me off because they don't use the Shatter Machine in AEW right now. They're using that freaking pile driver, which is cool. Like, okay, they're doing a pile driver in AEW. That's super rad. Oh, wait, whatnot. Wait, wait, wait. Is it the spike pile driver? It's the spike pile driver, yeah. That is an homage to the Horseman. Which is totally understandable. Right. You know, they got Tully Blanchard as their manager. That makes all the sense in the world. That's cool. I'm yes. cool with that. But Shatter Machine, ladies and gentlemen, if there's anything about the, what we're going to discuss this evening, it'll be Shatter Machine and how great it is, and also the ending sequence to Drew McIntyre and Dolph Ziggler against Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose. Because when Ross and I watched that match live, when we saw that ending, we were like, oh, good God. That's the best thing I've ever seen. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. But so, let me just talk about the Shatter Machine really quickly because Johnny mm-hmm. Gargano goes in for a slingshot spear. And I don't mean to take this away from you, Ross. I apologize. You know I love you. I hate interrupting you. But I got so hyped when I saw this sequence. He goes in for his patented slingshot spear. Freaking, oh my God. Um, Wilder grabs him midair and then boom, Dawson double knees. Whoop, done. Absolute dunzo. It was so quick. It was so much. It was one of the speediest shatter machines I've seen, which made it absolutely killer. It was awesome. Okay, I'm done. So, of course, it was done out of the corner. Uh, one of the men were in the ropes when they started the move, which makes it even more difficult because you have to be even more stable because you're not on flat ground. Gargano takes it flush. One, two, three. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, now DIY has to win two falls in a row against the best tag team in the brand. Like, Graves was like, these guys should just go to the back. I I laughed. (laughs) I laughed uproariously. I was like, Corey Graves, I know you think they have no chance, but really, like, they just lost one fall. It's been like 10 minutes. Give them a break. But that's what he's supposed to do. So the second fall is DIY is on the ropes. They have to get a fall. If they if they lose, it's a two nothing shutout. No one's gonna take them seriously. The revival get to keep talking their crap. You know, no flips. They're just all business. What what's their catchphrase? No flips, just fists. There it is. I love that. So they're on the ropes. They're desperate. They're thinking, okay, we gotta pull out all the stops. And they pull out all the stops. And they're just trying to get up and they're just trying to get a pinfall or they're trying to get a submission and the revival are letting them play into this pitfall because they're like, okay, they're going to make a mistake. We're going to hit a move or we're going to hit shatter machine again. And it's over. And it doesn't happen because right when you think Gargano is, has been beat up for 10 minutes straight and he can't get the tag, he makes the tag, but the ref doesn't see it. It's like, oh, gosh, now Gargano's going to get beat up again. So finally, they get the tag. Ciampa gets in, runs through. He hits the knee flush. Revival kicks out. I was like, oh, my gosh, what's it going to take? So then finally, it finally happens. DIY finally eke out the second fall, just barely. And the Revival are are, are just – they're just hazy. And DIY – are spent. They are spent. 
They got the second fall. And the Revival's like, okay, just get our heads straight. They're spent. We're going to get them. And the rest of that match was a flurry of who's going to make the mistake. And it turned into both teams making a lot of mistakes and, and, and it being not, it being very uncharacteristic, especially of the revival, the revival don't make the mistakes. They're, they're the champs. They, they, they're the champs for a reason. They don't make big mistakes. And finally, after all this time, Gargano gets the submission hold in the ring and just when the other member of the Revival is going to break up the submission hold, Gargano, or I should say, Ciampa puts on his submission. You have a double submission in the middle of the ring. Revival are, cl- are clasping hands together. They're trying not to tap out. They're trying was, so hard, and then they such a beautiful tap moment. out. Like, that was such a beautiful moment. I, like, I, I don't mean to go ahead and get all emotional here for a second, but it was really, really cool because if you talk about teamwork, you talk about tag team wrestling, right? And Scott Dawson and Dash Wilder now as their, their cash wheeler and Dax Harwood, um, FTR, like that's, that's, that's always been their thing. They've never, throughout the entire 10, 15 years that they've been a tag team over the, over, over the you know, span of the world, you have never seen or said, oh, Scott Dawson is going to be the breakout guy in this group or Dash Wild or uh, Dash Wilder is going to be the breakout guy in this group and blah, blah, blah. No, it was them. They've always put the tag team first. And for you to go ahead and see them be in a double submission like that and holding on to one another and they're like, we're not going to tap. We're not going to tap. And then they're like, we got to tap. And they tap out together. It was, it was, it was funny but at the same time, from a tag team brotherhood perspective, you're like, they they won together, they lost together, they tapped out together. Like, they did everything together. It's like, if we're going to die, I'm going down with you. I'm going down with you too, brother. It was a very cool moment. And then you also see on the other side, you know, yeah, by the way, so this was Ciampa pre-neck injury. Yes. Man, was he small compared to what he is now. By the way, this was also pre Tommaso Ciampa, like ridiculous tan and big, yeah, like ridiculous tan. Ridiculous tan and kind of bushy beard, not quite as bushy as he got as he has it now. He's got it on a different level right now. I, I'm convinced that he basically took the Triple H routine of rehabbing and just said, I'm going to get more tan and more hairy. <laughs> and clearly more yoked. Clearly yes. more, more yoked. Yes. Yeah. So, all right, this is this is the point in the show where I absolutely stress sequencing being the reason why this match is so great. So, a two out of three falls match. We've we've done two out of three falls matches on this show, and a lot of times it's like, well, it takes away from the momentum and the suspense because most two out most two out of three falls matches go to the third fall. So basically, Gargano, you're just, we're talking to you. So basically, we're just waiting until the third fall for there to be any suspense. The great part about this match is, first of all, the first fall comes completely out of nowhere. You don't see it coming, and then it's just over. But leading up to that, the revival, their tag team matches are just, they're just clinics. It's just, okay, 
move, 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 but nothing really feels out of place. It's just bang, 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 and it feels like it's just part of their plan. And then you get to DIY when they're setting up and they're expending all their energy. You know, it's kick off the ropes, kick off the ropes, you know, leading to the tag, which then leads to a double team move, which then leads to off the ropes, move, slow down the pace with a hold, put them in a submission. It felt like a real fight, which is, okay, I'm going to wear you down. Then I'm going to ground and pound you. Then I'm going to take a risk and put some more torque behind my moves, whether it's in the air or on the ground. And then in the third fall, everything was so high pace. So basically they went from slow pace to medium pace to fast pace. And it showed in the desperation of the match. It showed the, okay, the cool cockiness of the heels versus the upstart baby faces who just wanted to get an advantage early. And then expending all the energy just to tie while the heels are just trying to do enough to get by. And then at the end, the heels doing uncharacteristic things and the baby faces grasping at everything they're doing. The counters, the holds, the big moves, the small moves, everything in between had purpose. And that's what I talk about when it's sequencing. It's not just do a thousand moves to do a thousand moves. It's death by a paper cut, which is, you know, do a little bit here, a little bit there, a little more here, a little less there. But at the same time, you're telling the story adequately in a three-part act, which by the way, most good movies are three-part acts. Now I realize it's easier because you have three falls here. So you can kind of tell a three-point act here. So that makes it cater to that. But in this case, it told a complete story. Although, you know, you, I think you make an excellent point, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to piggyback off of that because I do, I too think that this match is thoroughly incredible. You know, I started watching this match, and it's been a while since I last watched this match, and I was like, that first small, that first fall did come out of nowhere, and it was like so amazing. But the first six minutes of this match, you're like, oh my God, it's kind of, it's a little slow for my taste, right? But then that was the whole point. Uh, unlike Gargano and Cole, and, and, and I'm, yeah, Gargano and Cole at New York, which Ross and I have talked about that match at length on this program, along with its sequel, which both of us think that they're both near one another of greatness. He goes New York, I go 25. And the reason why I go with 25 was because the two out of three falls match to me they just, to me, they weren't putting enough into the story, whereas they went full balls to the wall for that third fall, where there was a bit more pacing to me in DIY versus the revival in Toronto, that I was actually able to appreciate the whole construct of the match more, even though I, I'll tell you right now, Gargano and Cole in New York is better overall. But I think because the third fall of Gargano and Cole is so amazingly incredible that probably puts it over the edge. But if you look at this match, cause this match went Ross, let me give me a second. I'll tell you how long this match went. This did, this was, this was a, they gave this match time, but it wasn't an enormous amount of time. This match maybe squeaked out 20 minutes. They went 22 minutes and 18 seconds. So they barely gave 20 minutes to a two out of three falls match. And for them to go ahead 
It's like if you were to watch a 95-minute action movie and it had a great story to go along with it, but it's not overly long. Because you would think to yourself, a great action film that's got story usually turns out to be a very long action film. You know, I mean, even though this is uh, an entirely kind of maybe not the best example, but if you look at Avengers Endgame, which is all this, it's 10 years worth of story, right? But they give it three years, or three hours, excuse me, right? Is that a wrestling match I'm hearing in the background, by the way? Yeah, yeah I remember. I told you I had, I, I've got I thought to, you were uh, on mute. I did. I forgot to pause it. I apologize. <laughs> the guy's watching a match in the middle of our of our freaking podcast. Turn it on mute. <laughs> I can't hear your commentary. Ah, come on. It's, it's, it's a great match. It's fine. That being said, my, my point is, for them to go ahead and give you such a great story with as I know I'm kind of saying, Oh, you're calling a 20 minute match short. That's not the point. I'm saying a two out of three falls match. They got 20 minutes was short. And for them to go ahead and give you that great of a story, I think takes a lot of just, it takes a lot and, and, and credit to Gargano, Ciampa, Wilder and, uh, and Dawson because they, they absolutely knocked it out of the park. I think my favorite thing is Let's be very clear. Tommaso, Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano at this point in time were essentially a little heavier than cruiserweight because they were just in the cruiserweight classic about what, Ross, like six months prior? Something like right that. Right around there? Yeah, during the summertime. So if, if, if they, were, they were maybe 200 pounds each. And you look at Wilder and Dawson, they're some big boys, especially, especially Dawson, but – but Wilder is bulky. He's always been bulky, right? And I watched him against Gargano and the chain wrestling that they were doing towards the end of the match, mind you. This was not at the beginning of the match. At the beginning of the match, it's one thing, okay? So he's still got a plenty of stamina, blah, blah, blah. You're talking like 18 minutes deep into this match and then Wilder going toe-to-toe chain wrestling for chain wrestling against Johnny Gargano. A guy who, even though I get annoyed with at times, I will be the first person to tell you is in the top five of the best ever that NXT has ever put out. And Wilder is hanging with them like nothing. And there's a good three-inch size difference, and there's at least a 35 to 40-pound difference between these two. And Wilder was hanging with them like nothing. Yeah, no. Let me, let me say this right now. FTR is the best tag team on the planet. They're pretty special. And I will yeah. say that uh, there are probably a few tag team moves that I probably enjoy more than Shatter Machine in the history of pro wrestling. Um, but right now, I don't know if there's a double team move that's better. Now, if our last match, if they were still a team, oh boy, that would be high up there. So we're finally, right at, now. we're finally at the moment, ladies and gentlemen, where we get to talk Hell in a Cell 2018, which again... Totally, we haven't talked about this match in two years, to the day. I, I, I preface it once again with, this was the time period, well, okay, first of all, this pay-per-view ended in a no contest. I was very upset about it at the time, and... This was also during the time period where, I kid you not, and you can listen to it in the archives, and I will say it again, 
This was the time when if Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, Dean Ambrose, Braun Strowman, Drew McIntyre, or Dolph Ziggler were involved in a one-on-one match, a tag team match, or a six-man tag, or any combination of anything like that, it was must-see television on WWE programming. That went on. So that was the Shield versus the group that was known as the Dogs of War. Yes. They called themselves the Dogs of War. Seriously, one of the better names you they've come up with in a long time. I like the Hurt Business, but the Dogs of War was awesome. They, of course, teased the fact that uh, either the Shield could have all the belts or the Dogs of War could have all the belts. In fact, I think I remember... I think I predicted Braun Strowman winning this match and becoming the new Universal Champion. We both did, and boy, howdy, were we wrong. Shout out to Brock Lesnar for ruining everything. Gosh, just... I I, I believe this is what kicked off the Push Braun Strowman Immediately campaign that then lasted Uh, for years. you You had been on that boat for a while, but you really harped on the fact that they needed to push Braun Strowman Immediately. Listen... If there was ever a, like, 16-month span of when Braun Strowman needed to be pushed, like, via a rocket, it was, it was mid-2017 through late 2018. Like, there was no better time that you needed to see Braun Strowman be at the, the top of the world wrestling, of world wrestling entertainment. They, it was insane. They missed their shot. They so. missed their shot big time. And then they ruined it at Crown Jewel two months later. You still ruined it. Get another chance and you still ruin it. So this match was uh, Dean Ambrose, now known as John Moxley, the current AEW world champion, and uh, Seth Rollins, who, uh, yeah, he's done some special things since then, including be the father of Becky Lynch's unborn child um, and a bunch of other things. But Seth Rollins has been one of the – he, he's been one of the most consistent uh, competitors in WWE, and this was during the middle of that run as well. Yes. Um, so it was uh, Rollins and Ambrose versus the Raw Tag Team Champions of Dolph Ziggler, who was coming out to his record scratch crap that nobody knew what was going on because it was so jolting at the time. And then the big back. Jack Scotsman who just walked to the ring and was like, don't touch me <laughs> because the, these two were basically guys that were like, you know what? We don't have to like each other, but our goal is to get these three out of the top position yeah. because these three, and I met, and I'm, and I, I point cause nobody's seeing the three I'm talking about is of course the shield. Because Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins, and Roman Reigns have pretty much run roughshod over the WWE for the better part of how long Half did it been that then? Half a decade? Okay. So, I'm not saying that Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre didn't have their successes, but, I mean, it was like, all right, well, if somebody's going to step up to them, we know we're good. So, we'll just get this big giant of a man, Braun Strowman, and we'll just take them all down together. So they won the tag team titles. Uh, Mr. Historian, do you remember who they won the tag team titles from? You know what? If I'm not mistaken, didn't they beat the hell out of the B team? I'm pretty darn sure they beat the hell out of the B team. Thank God for that. So <laughs> just, just, to, just to 
rewind back because the Raw and SmackDown tag team titles have both got very weird histories. True. So 2018, by the way, during this time period, this was uh, this was the year that uh, Braun Strowman and a nine-year-old won the tag team titles at WrestleMania 34. Ah, uh, yes, Nicholas. They were, th- they were then vacated. Yes, Nicholas Cone, John Cone's mm-hmm. son, won Shout two. Shout out to John Cone. Slick, slick back hair. He uh, did not they, referee this match, mind you. They were then vacated, and uh, the bar ended up losing to Bray Wyatt and Matt Hardy. This is true. And then, yes, I can't believe I'm saying this, the B team yeah. beat Bray Wyatt and Matt Hardy to win the titles at Extreme Rules, and then two months later, they lost to Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre. You are yeah, absolutely was- correct. So the, what, what really frustrated me during the time was um, I know that – so the whole point of this, and then we'll get into this classic, but I just need to get this off my chest. Bo Dallas and Curtis Axel, I think they had, they had left the Miz's stable. Like they, be, they turned face. Oh, they had. Yeah, they had. They had. And, and, and I get it. Like, they were getting some cheers and some pops. And it's like, oh, my God, B-team, B-team, go, go, go. But they didn't always have that music. They had that sweet Battle Scars music for a while, too. It was awesome. Okay. These Battle Scars. Yeah, that I'll tell music. you something. You, you might want to go ahead and give them all the, you know, oh, hey, at least they had kind of cool music. No. Bo Dallas and Curtis Saxel, are you kidding me? These battles, you look, guys. You look, it, it, was, it, it made me mad because on Raw, you had Bo Dallas and Curtis Axel as the Raw Tag Team Champions. But over on SmackDown, you had the rivalry of the decade between the Usos and the New Day. Mm-hmm. And you were just like, what in tarnations is going on here? So McIntyre and Ziggler, they beat the hell out of the B team. They're the Raw Tag Team Champions. Now, I will tell you that... Uh, Rollins and Ambrose actually ended up winning the titles a month after this, which I was not in agreement with at the time because I really thought this team needed some leverage. So I realized it just blew the end of the match, but, I mean, we're going to get into it. So this match. (laughs) So Dolph Ziggler has always been – in two schools of thought. People have either thought he was underappreciated and underpushed, or there is a select group of the fan base that have thought that he's been vastly overrated. Okay. Which, which by the way, okay, hold on, because you know I'm on your side for this, so I'm playing devil's advocate for you before you launch on people that think that way. Okay. Dolph Ziggler won the Money in the Bank briefcase. He cashed in. He won the title. It was one of the biggest pops ever at a Raw after WrestleMania. It was in the IZOD Center back when the Nets still played in New Jersey. It was amazing. And then, unfortunately, Jack Swagger, now known as Jake Hager, kicked a ladder into his face. He got a concussion. And WWE basically gave up on him as a world champion after that. And then he was put in the... You know, uh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? He was in the thank you. He was put into the gatekeeper role because he could still work, 
but they never trusted him at that next level because concussions and let's see when was when was the big WWE concussion lawsuit thing that was going on? Was that like mid two thousands? No, was it? Wait, well, hold on. Was there? Cause or was it, was it late two thousands? It was late two thousands because wasn't it going on the same time as the NFL? Okay, so in the grand scheme of things, right? The yeah. WWE does not want to be seen as well. We're putting a guy on top that's got a concussion well, yeah, and making it, him wrestle every night. So right, at some could, level, I the get Ben thing blew up in their face. That had yes. a lot to do with it. So. I understand that Dolph Ziggler has not always been the most motivated person in the world. Okay. I get it. He's very much in the same vein to me as Randy Orton, which is when Dolph Ziggler is motivated, when Dolph Ziggler is on his game, there are very few that are better than him at his total craft. And so when you put him in this role, when essentially his job, job in this team is to make Drew McIntyre look like a million bucks. Which he did flawlessly. Which I would point to this moment as the moment that started the seed in Vince McMahon's mind of Drew McIntyre could be a world champion someday. Because this match (laughs) All right, so of course Dolph starts because he's Dolph. And he's got the big guy in the corner. Dolph's a show-off. He wants to do everything. But if not, he's got the big guy. And, of course, in the uh, dynamic between uh, Rollins and Ambrose, Rollins is going to start. Because of the two, Ambrose is considered the, quote, heavy hitter, whereas Rollins is considered the, quote, workhorse. So I will let you defend before I go into the weeds. I will let you defend... Uh, Dolph Ziggler and the greatness that is him before we get into how awesome he was in this match. Yes, yes, absolutely. And Oh, and mind you, just to go ahead and also state from a storyline story perspective, Ziggler and Rollins had been beefing over the IC title for the better part of three months during the middle of this run. So them starting the match with one another, first of all, made sense because of the rivalry. Secondly, this was Ambrose's first match back from being gone for the past six months because of that horrible staff infection the first one not the second one in AEW but he had a first one in 2018 which nearly ended his life and it was an utterly insane and Ambrose came back jacked this was the closest to John Moxley we've ever seen in WWE let me just say that but let me defend Dolph Ziggler for a second um I I, I don't I, I don't know why people say that he's overrated I, I I really don't because when you look at his craft when you look at what he does from a nightly basis all he does is show off literally that's all he does is show off and in a good way not in the sense oh he's a show off like he actually really sucks no 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 no. Dolph Ziggler is a former highly ranked nationally collegiate wrestler from Kent State University ladies and gentlemen this man can go I have stated for the last two years on this podcast and for the last five years of my life that I've been actually the last decade that I've been watching Dolph Ziggler, that Dolph Ziggler is probably the best seller in the game. I, 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 I can't think of anybody who's a better seller than he is. Maybe not named AJ Styles. Like, and even then Dolph's sometimes better than AJ Styles from a selling perspective, not from an overall standpoint, from a selling perspective. 
And you might say to yourself, well, Jorge, that's just one aspect of his game. Okay, fine. His wrestling acumen is second to none. He is 39 and moves like he's 29 still. He got knocked out by Jack Swagger back in 2013. Tell me the last time you've seen Dolph Ziggler get injured after that. You uh, have I No, hold on. I think the answer is he had concussion-like symptoms for a while after that. True. And then I thought he did have – thought he had a leg injury for a little while. Well, he took some time off. There was a couple times where he took some time off over the last couple of years, but that's been because, you know, he had contract negotiations, and then he's also got his stand-up going on on the side, and he's a Fox News correspondent. We all know this about Dolph Ziggler. My point is – you look at the overall construct of what is Dolph Ziggler. Oh, and by the way, I haven't even gotten into his promo game yet and how fire that is when he's, when he's rolling. He made – now, mind you, The Miz deserves a lot of credit in this too, but late 2016, the rivalry between Dolph Ziggler and The Miz for the Intercontinental Championship when they were both on SmackDown? I mean, come on, guys. You're meaning to tell me you haven't watched that series of matches in that rivalry, and you're not going to go ahead and tell me that you're still going to look at me dead in the eye and say Dolph Ziggler's overrated? I mean, he, he helped Miz achieve that level of awesomeness that we now know him and respect him for in late 2016. Miz doesn't have that with Dolph Ziggler. Miz isn't the Miz how we know him now. He, it's Dolph Ziggler, guys. And he's done this for countless other people. Like, he single-handedly, single-handedly made Alberto Del Rio get booed again. That was all him. Okay? Dolph Ziggler, to me, should not be looked as overrated. Hell, last year during Kofi Kingston's run, when he had his match against Kofi Kingston, there was actually a massive portion of the crowd rooting for Dolph Ziggler, not because they were tired of Kofi Kingston, but because they still love Dolph Ziggler. So for him to still take a huge chunk of the Kofi fan base and then put him on his side for tw- for a 20-minute match, which, by the way, Ross and I both know that that match was fire at stopping grounds. That steel cage match was unbelievably cool. And Ross loves that spot of Kofi jumping over Dolph to get out of the cage. That match is that, – that, that spot is still dope. That, um, is, that is Kofi Kingston's best match as the champion. As the champion, I will – probably agree with you. I don't think it's the best match of that entire run for Kofi. To me, that was the WrestleMania match with Debray, but I get, but that was his best title defense. And I will agree with you on that. Yes. Um, my point is, I think people get my point. Every single time people say Dolph Ziggler is out, he comes back in swinging for the fences and nine times out of 10, he connects and he's so damn good at his job. And sure. I mean, the super kick he pulls off is still fantastic. He made the famous Sir Cool again ever since Billy Gunn. And then Zigzag, for what me, for people what might think about it and stuff like that, they might say, oh, it's kind of a lame-ass move. No, you get whiplash from that move. That, also, that, that, that move is dope, and especially when it connects with the Claymore kick. I was just about to get to that, which is if these two were still a team, the Zigzag into the Claymore would be absolutely unbelievable. Also, remind you um, – now, I realize what I'm about to say is weird because Dolph Ziggler is not a small man by any means. No, he's not. But Neither is you, Rollins. 
but you mentioned Billy Gunn, who was also deceptively like a giant. Um, but you know, Dolph does his sleeper by jumping on your back. He doesn't he doesn't grapple you from the ground and get you down to your knee and onto the ground. He jumps right, like the on Bukina your clutch. back. Yes. So so this match starts with Dolph and Rollins, who had been feuding for the Intercontinental title. And then you've got the two psychotic people on the outside. Literally, it was the lunatic fringe and the Scottish psychopath. Perfect. Makes sense. So, of course, early on, it's, uh, you know, uh, you can do anything I can do better. You know, kind of, kind of like a prove-it game. And, you know, Dolph's his cocky self. And even Seth starts to kind of be like, yeah, well, like, I just think I'm better than you. So they have this nice little back and forth that goes for a while. And then Dolph's just like, all right, screw this. I'm getting the big guy in. And Rollins just looks at him and goes, oh, you're bringing your psychopath in? He takes one look at Ambrose. And Ambrose is just like, tag me in. I don't care. Which, by the way, Ambrose, another guy, deceptively very large. Um, just again, just because of the way that they're shot right. on camera. Yeah, Ambrose is six four, ladies and gentlemen. He is not a small man by any stretch of the imagination. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So he gets in the ring with McIntyre, and McIntyre's a pretty imposing guy. Like he's just he's just an imposing figure. And Dean Ambrose just walks up to him and is be like, "I'm just gonna kick your ass." And so, like. I'm trying to remember if Dean tried to headbutt him or he tried to headbutt him and then Drew then just headbutted him because it's part of his offense. But, like, Ambrose and Rollins went into this match being like, we have nothing to lose. You guys have the belts. Like, you guys may be the champions, but we have nothing to lose. We think we're better than you, and we're just going to beat you at your own game, and we've got this crowd behind us, which, by the way, uh, Hell in a Cell 2018 took place San Antonio, in if I'm not mistaken. San Antonio, Texas at the AT&T Center. That is yeah. correct. So it was pretty raucous crowd. I will not say it was – okay, here's, here's what I will say. Of the three crowds, I think this was the worst. Yes. Okay. That does not mean people were not excited for this match. What I'm saying is that if you watch Hell in a Cell 2018, watch this match and very little else. <laughs> true, true. I mean, because... and, and, and here's the thing. You know, you had Toronto, which is notorious for being a crazy crowd any single time. And not to mention, it was also big pay-per-view weekend Survivor Series in 2016. Mm. And then, of true. course, you know, post-Attitude Era 2001. I mean, you can't beat that. You, can, you can't beat that. So, the pitfall with this match, and it is only, it, it is probably my only complaint of this match, is they had Ambrose go for dirty deeds like seventeen times in this match, and I'm just like, dude, no! Like everybody knows, if you hit this, it's over. So why are you teasing us with this move seventeen times when we know you're not going to hit it for at least twenty minutes into this match? I hate when matches do that. It bothered me in this one. It bothers me in every match they do it in. I wish they would do less of it. It's a WWE thing. I'm not saying other companies don't do it, 
but WWE does do it to a fault. I wish they wouldn't do it. Outside of that, though, outside of that, this match showcased two very distinct things, which was, one, these two teams were equals, and two, these two teams, no matter how little or how much they teamed together, they were cohesive units. They had specific goals in the match, which was Rollins and Ambrose had nothing to lose, and they were just going to take the titles from these guys. Ziggler and McIntyre were like, okay, we have the titles, but yeah, like us keeping the belts is cool and all, but like we want to like take these guys off their perch. A physical standpoint, from a mental standpoint, it's another reason why I love Drew McIntyre. He's my favorite champion, and he's one of my favorite competitors now and even in the last you know decade, and that is he plays mind games in the ring. He will talk trash in the ring that's very pointed, that gets you to the point of he makes you as an audience member feel like you're taking an ass-kicking with the guy that he's actually giving the ass-kicking to. That's hard to do, to get me as a fan wrapped up in a match so much that I feel as if Drew McIntyre is physically getting involved through my television set. That is a skill. Dolph Ziggler physically makes me think, oh, well, he's going to kick my face off because he does such a good job with his ring psychology. It's not just, I'm going to do a super kick because I'm going to do a super kick and then I'm going to do 27 more in a match. I'm talking to you, young bucks. Which, by the way, the super kick's one of the most overused things. And, and again, Dolph Ziggler overuses it too. Pretty much everybody in the freaking WWE overuses it all the time. So Tom's this even overuses it. Yes. So this match was a war. That's what it was. And that's what they build it as. It almost felt as if, and again, this is, this is going to be construed as another negative. It almost felt like the tag team titles were, were secondary, which normally I would talk a lot of trash about in the fact that they're not making the belt special. But, yeah, you said it. When the B team are holding the tag team titles, I don't take them seriously. So these guys holding the tag team titles, it's not that I didn't take them seriously. It was just a matter of anything that these four plus Roman and Braun did – I wanted to be a part of. It didn't really matter the stakes because they were so compelling to watch. I'm enthralled by watching it right now. It, it's such a great match. It, it, it's such a great match from a storytelling perspective. Like, um, I, I was listening to everything you're saying, by the way. It wasn't the fact that, you, that I wasn't paying attention. It's just I'm watching it, and it's very interesting to be able to actually watch it and be able to commentate on it in real time. I think that's actually a really fun thing to do. First of all, you mentioned something when we were discussing the first match of Stone Cold and Trips versus Y2J and Benoit, how there was a certain fluidity that there was, that, that, that there was just no, it was natural. This match. No wasted moments. No, no wasted, wasted moments. moments. Hmm? This match brought that out in 2018 for the first time in a long time because I felt that over the past decade, and Rossi can go ahead and attest to this too, the fluidity and the, and the, and the naturalness 
and all that. It, I feel like it's an, it's a lost art. It, I, we talk about it, you and I, all the time. Whenever I saw uh, a Kurt Angle match, even two years ago or a year ago, when he was still, you know, when he wrestled against Baron Corbin at WrestleMania, like his kickouts were still great. Like not like when John Cena's down. Like John Cena's kind of got his arms up, and you go, you look at him, and he's getting ready to pop his shoulder. Like no disrespect to John Cena, he's one of the goats. I love him. You love him. We all love him. It's fine. But you can tell when Cena is about to kick out. And you can't tell when Rock's going to kick out. You can't tell when Angle's going to kick out. You couldn't tell when Trips was going to kick out, kick out. And you couldn't tell when Stone Cold was going to kick out. And there was a certain fluidity about that. Now, this isn't about kickouts or anything like that, but I'm watching this match between Ambrose and Rollins and Ziggler and McIntyre. And for guys of the quote-unquote new school, if you will, they sure as hell wrestled a very old school, not necessarily style, because it wasn't the match wasn't old school. The match was actually very new school and very, very great. It was taking the greatness of now and putting it on a higher pedestal. But they, they definitely had the fluidity that I love of the old school, and and that's very hard to do, because Ambrose has never always been like that, and neither has Rollins, mind you. And True McIntyre. To an extent, you know, he'd been working the indie scene for the last six years and stuff like that. So he definitely picked some new stuff out there. And he was a completely new man when he came to NXT in 2017. But, you know, Dolph, Dolph had that old school style to him in this match. And that, to me, is what makes this match so impeccable. It makes It's untouched over the last two years in tag, in tag matches. In the last two years on the main roster... I can't think of a tag match that's better than this one over the last two years on the main roster, ladies and gentlemen. There is some greatness over it that's happened in the last two years in NXT that I'm just like, damn, those are some good matches. But, um, but for example, so Rollins goes for um, a suicide dive, and he gets caught by Ziggler and by McIntyre, and then they're about to go ahead and throw him onto the floor, and then Dino comes running over the top rope, and then he knocks everybody down. And it's fantastic. Ross, I can't tell you how much I freaking love this match. I will summarize this match as gritty intensity. So you said it before. It took old school elements into a new school style. Yes. It never felt out of control. I never felt like the match slowed down to a snail's pace. I never felt like they sped the match up too much for it to be out of control. They let the heels dictate the match. That is such an important thing I must emphasize. When you have strong heels in a match, let them dictate what they do with pacing. And I think what's really important to know to note, and Ross and I, when we first watched this match a couple of years ago, we harped on this on the podcast, and we'll harp on it now. Dino, we were afraid he was going to look rusty in this match, and he comes in guns a-blazing. And not just like, oh, baby face and spurts here and there. Dean was on it this night. For him to have been gone for eight months, seven and a half months, mind you, I would have thought that there was going to be some major ring rust because there he didn't have too many um, matches in the month lead up from summer or three and a half week lead up from SummerSlam up until Hell in a Cell during the summer. 
I don't think he had one match on. Maybe he didn't have one match on TV, if that. So you know, for a guy who in 2016 had, I think in 2016 the statistic was Dean Ambrose worked the worst, the worked the most amount of matches in WWE by a long haul, too. By the way, so for him to be the guy that was really the workhorse in 2016, for him to go ahead and take off so much time in 2018 and then come back and be wrestling at such a high pace such a high intensity against two other guys who go ahead and like to go ahead and pick up the pace in McIntyre and Ziggler. I mean, listen, there's a reason why Mox is great right now. There's a reason why we all love John Moxley's because he's, I mean, he's just got this grittiness to him that it just doesn't stop. And then this was to me near peak Rollins, near peak Rollins. I mean, I mean, he was in the peak in 2019 last year, of course, when he was on the year, when he was the number one wrestler on the planet. But this was this was right at the moment where in 2018, if you didn't think that Seth Rollins was going to win the Royal Rumble, I don't know who you thought was. Because this was Rollins like on a tear at this moment in time. Like he was having matches galore with everybody and anybody. His triple threat at WrestleMania 34 against Balor and Miz for the IC title was fire. And then he had like great matches with Ziggler. He was tr- helping put over Elias in the, in the IC title scene. Um, I mean, Rollins had some bangers, but this match right here, man. So this is yeah. So I thoroughly enjoyed the fact that I got to see both teams operate at full capacity. In a couple of these other matches that we've had, I've always felt like one team has definitively been superior for large portions of the match. Yes. This match was legitimately pretty 50-50 for most of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you may say that maybe the heels had a 55-45 advantage and that's okay. But what I'm saying is that I got to see both teams at their peak when it came to efficiency. Now, I said I only had one complaint. I will say this again. There were a lot of roll-up false finishes. A lot. Like, it's to take over Toronto. I understand that. But it's also two out of three falls, and the storytelling of desperation and just trying to get a fall or just trying to end the match make it so that I accept those false finishes more because of the story and the style of match that we have. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I, I guess my caveat and my response to you, not that you were necessarily looking for one, but I will say that this this pay-per-view had three matches that went nearly 25 minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. The Hell in a Cell match between Roman Reigns and Braun Strowman went 24-10, and then Randy Orton and Jeff Hardy was the second longest match of the night, two seconds shorter than this one at 24-50. They gave Ziggler, McIntyre, Ambrose, and Rollins nearly 25 minutes to work with. So, you know, you might talk about desperation, about them seeking, like, to get a fall and stuff like that, but then, then I guess my argument would be that this particular tag match – they kept on throwing everything at one another and nothing was working. They kept on throwing bombs and nothing was working against one another. So like for there to be the roll-ups, I wouldn't necessarily say I have a problem with it, but, but I understand where you're coming from. I do. So this match. So 
Ambrose was going for Dirty Deeds for like half the match. Ziggler was going for Zigzag for like half the match. So to me, I was like, okay, it's going to come down to probably Rollins and Drew because Mm -hmm. this match is probably going to come down to we're going to try and make Drew look like a million bucks. Not that we're trying to, you know, make anybody else look bad, but to me this match was make sure Drew looks really strong, which right. which, which which they did. Yeah. And, and also make three... sure to protect Ambrose because he'd been gone for seven and a half months. Correct. Yeah. So you've got Rollins who's got to do a lot of the work. Ziggler is going to do his part, and we're going to make Drew look like a million bucks. So – Lots of action on the outside as we progress to the end of the match. Rollins is about to hit his patented move off the top rope, which is suplex, roll into the Falcon Arrow, right? Yeah. Because he had already hit a Falcon Arrow earlier in the match on Ziggler, Ziggler. which which Ziggler kicked out of. Correct. So, sorry about that. So there was there was a dive to the outside. Rollins dives to the outside on both of them. They catch him. Then Ambrose comes out after him and knocks everybody over bowling pin style. Right. So then Ziggler and Rollins both barely beat the count back in so that it's not a double count out and we don't end this match with shenanigans. They go to the corner. Ziggler's about to hit a big move. Rollins catches him at the top. Drew... Gets back in the ring because Dino had been on the outside because they did something on the outside. He hits the first part of the suplex. He's about to pick him up for the Falcon Arrow. And this is why it's probably one of my favorite finishers in WWE right now. He's about to pick him up for the Falcon Arrow. And all of a sudden, Drew McIntyre just runs in the ring, claymores him in the face. Dolph Ziggler is dead weight. He is he he's he's dead. Like the top rope suplex, he was he's dead. Like the Falcon Arrow is is just is just icing it's on the imminent cake. and then curb stomp coming right after that. Yes. Yeah. But by that point, like Rollins probably could have tried to pin him and then set up the move afterwards if they wanted to do that. Dolph Ziggler is dead weight. McIntyre comes in and just claymores Seth Rollins to death, right in the face, <laughs> rolls out of the way because, you know. He's not, he's not legally in the match. Claymore's in the face, calmly rolls out of the ring. Ziggler is just, he's just got his arm barely draped over Rollins. Ref comes over, one, two, three, that's your match. I watched this, I watched this two years ago. My mouth was agape. I was shocked. And I was like, oh my God, that finish is genius. It's brilliant. It protects everyone. It gets over Drew. It gets over the finisher. It keeps Seth strong. It keeps Ambrose strong, given his stance in the match. Ziggler comes out of this looking awesome because he got the pin even though he was dead. And and the baby faces can come out of this match and go, yeah, you beat us, but you didn't really beat us. Like, Drew just kicked him in the face like we had Dolph dead to rights. So, of course, it set the rematch up. Which, of course, then the baby faces won, which I thought that was a little too soon. But still, like, just this entire match was just setting up for a big moment. And you're thinking, okay, they're setting it up for Rollins. They're setting it up for Rollins. Dino's going to get a belt back. It's going to be a good story. The Shield are going to have all the belts back. And then 
with a sudden strike of a claymore kick to the face, all those dreams died. And if I remember correctly, this is the match where Drew literally carried Dolph to the back because, and again, it was not symbolic of him carrying the match, but Drew was just like, okay, this is my partner. We did our job. We just made them, we just made them, you know, think about the fact that maybe they're not the best team anymore and maybe we're here to stay. And now my partner's dead weight on the mat. Okay, I got to get him out of here. So he just hurls him on his back and just carries him to the back. It was such a great visual. That, I remember that was match going. I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember this match probably until the end of time. Yes. I, 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 I just, it's such, it's so great when you can be surprised and not expect it. Because I feel like as wrestling fans, we want to be surprised, but we also want to kind of expect it. Whereas this was, all right, Rollins is just going to get the will and the Shield are going to be fine and we're all going to be happy about it. And then, oh my gosh, it's over. So I remember us picking up. Awesome. Yeah. I remember us doing this, the the, the Hell in a Cell preview show and both of us saying, oh, we actually thought that McIntyre and Ziggler were going to retain in this match. I think a lot of people were actually picking Ambrose and Rollins to win the Raw Tag Team titles that night. And I think that you and I were one of the few that actually went McIntyre and Ziggler. And then also, I remember specifically saying, oh, I think Rollins is going to be the one that takes the pin. I don't think that Dino is going to be the one that does. I think they're going to protect him. I'm pretty sure you actually disagreed with me. I remember you saying Ambrose is going to take the pin. I don't see them um, pinning Rollins because he's currently the IC champ, which, by the way, I thought that was – it made a lot of sense. Um, so when he hits – when he hits, when he's he's got he's got him in the air for Falconzero. It's not even the fact that he's picking him up. He's got him in the air, ladies and gentlemen. And then the Claymore hits out of nowhere, and you just see Ziggler's body because they showed the move in slow motion. <laughs> this is why it's so great. You just see Ziggler's dead body just fall like. Awesome. Where over the rainbow. And he barely gets his he he had his arm on him the entire time because he could barely he, he couldn't even move. One, two, three, boom. And it was it was amazing. And the yes, I agree with you. Him carrying out McIntyre carrying Ziggler out of the ring because Ziggler is dead is the best thing about this entire match besides the finish. This match this match is so good. As a as a match, as a battle, as a brawl, this was as a war. a war, this is one of the best tag team matches of all time. And it was Basically. lost in a completely forgotten pay-per-view. You know, I, you say it got lost, but I think I think that when you remind people of this match, they, 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 they actually pump the brakes and they're like, oh my God, you're right. That match was simply fantastic. It is. It is fantastic. Dave Meltzer gave this match four and a half stars. I want you to find a match on the main roster in the last five years that's better than this match. There is none. The only one that comes close to this on the main roster was Usos and New Day in the Hell in a Cell match. It's the only one that comes close, and it's still not better than this one. And again, that match 
for again that is a that is a gimmick match it is a gimmick match yes and it is and it is a really fun gimmick match but it's not the caliber of this it just it's it not. just isn't it just it's isn't not. so i when i did the podcast with um uh gerard and rice crispy when they came on um I the matches that we talked about on that pro, on that episode were um, DIY versus the Authors of Pain in the in the latter match at NXT Takeover uh, Chicago, um, and then it was the Young Bucks versus the Golden Lovers, which is uh, Ibushi and Omega, and um, one of my personal favorites, which you know this and, all, and everybody who listened to that episode knows. Um, it's the first. It's the first ever women's tag team title match. The help. The, the elimination chamber match. If I were to go ahead and take those three matches, and by the way, I, I went on record and I stated the Golden Lovers versus the Young Bucks was in the top three best wrestling matches I have ever seen. It, I rewatched this match, and then I remember, oh, so is this one, like. The three matches that we discussed, essentially, ladies and gentlemen, is, are, are, are basically, they're not even bona fide classics. They, they are, they're matches that are going to be things of legend to remember for a very long time. These matches are legendary. That's, that's what it is. These three matches that we just discussed this evening are legendary. So just to give you an idea, uh, Meltzer gave the two-man power trip versus Jericho and Benoit four and three quarters. Correct. I believe he gave uh, Ambrose and Rollins versus McIntyre and Ziggler four and a half. That is correct. And then I looked and then up. I believe he gave the two out of three falls match four and a half. Correct. Okay. So these are matches that are four and a half star matches. I mean, I've said this ad nauseum. There are very few matches in the history of me being a wrestling fan that I would consider. Five star matches. Perfect matches, yeah. Because I think very few perfect matches exist. I agree. That, so, it's funny that you say that because when we talked about when I talked the Golden Lovers versus the Young Bucks, Meltzer gave that match five stars, and then they asked me what would you give this match now, and I said it's a tag team match. And because tag team matches are so complicated, and there's so many things that go along with the comp, with the tag team match. I think it's near, if not impossible, to give a tag team match five stars. However, re-watching the three of these, would I give two of the matches that I discussed five stars? No. I pro- I, I'll tell you this right now. I can bump one of them up to four and three quarters, and I will bump up one of them to five stars, and I'll tell you which one that is when we rank them. So it is that time where we rank our matches that we go over here on the TDT's Classic Series. There are normally three matches in this set, so I will just go over quickly once again three matches we just talked about. We went over the May 21st, 2001 Raw is War main events for the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team titles between two-man power trip, that being Triple H and Stone Cold Steve Austin, versus Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit. We then went over the NXT TakeOver over Toronto 2016, two out of three falls match between DIY, that's Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa, versus the Revival, that being Scott Dawson and Dash Wilder, now known as FTR and AEW. And our final match that we went over was the Hell in a Cell 2018 
Raw Tag Team title match between Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose, now known as John Moxley, the AEW World Champion, and the Raw Tag Team Champions, Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre. So, normally I just randomly pick one of us to go first, because I feel like, uh, I think I kind of know where yours are at. Do you want me to go first? Do you want to go first? Hey, buddy. Uh, I missed you. You haven't been on the show for about a week. Why don't you go ahead and kick us off? I think I'm probably going to upset some people with my rankings because here's my issue. But when do you not upset people, Ross? <laughs> well, I mean, I am the heel of the show. I mean, let's be honest. So one of these matches personifies an entire era full of great wrestling. Another match is probably the best NXT tag team title match in the history of NXT. And the other one is one of my favorite matches of all time. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, this is so tough. It's so tough because I love all of these matches for different reasons. All right. If we are going on the complete package, which is story, pacing, sequencing, the match, everything involved, if that's what we're going off of, Hold on, before you give your answer, that's what we're going off of. What do you, what would you go off of? Are you talking about like from a personal standpoint? Like what's your favorite of the three? Because okay. if that's the case, I would like for you to go ahead and rank them based off of what we're discussing and then also say, but that's not my that's still not my favorite. Okay. I'd like to do that. If you're saying what my ranking is gonna be based on my personal bias, I would say the 2001 match is third. The Hell in a Cell match is second. And the Toronto match is first. However, if we're going off of just based on everything involving it, including lead up and everything else that goes into it, my rankings are... 2001, Hell in a Cell, Toronto. So here we go. The Raw is War 2001 match is ranked third for me, and here's why. Unfortunately, the thing that marks this down as number three for me, first of all, It was the main event of a Raw that they built up that was really good. It was a short match. I didn't need it to go 20 minutes. It did tell an awesome story. However, if you were to tell me that this was in May of 2000, June of 2001, April of 2003, okay, like, this is the era where the WWF was the king. 
they couldn't do anything wrong because they were the only game in town. WCW was out of the way. They were doing. They were running on all cylinders. Everything they did was gold. Like everything they did was gold. I realized, well, Russ, they did this that was really dumb. Yeah, you're right. They did do some really bad things. And nobody remembers it. So from an atmosphere, from a storytelling, I understand that. It's great. But if you're asking me to put it up against those two matches, it's almost unfair because it's two totally different eras of wrestling. It just is. And I'm not going to say, well, everything pre-2005 or whenever PG... Actually, when did PG era start? Uh, 2008. Okay. So there are some people that think if it's after... Or if it's between 2001 and 2008, it's crap. There are some people that say if it's before 2000, it's the best thing ever. There are some people that say that after 2008 or 2009 is the best. I'm not one of those people. I'm just saying some people, that's all they know. So, Or if you're like you're me, me and if it's pre-96, it's trash. I'm just kidding. Clearly, because you don't see the value in 1984 Hulkamania, but to each their own. I or, never said that. Or, or you don't like a cage match involving the Hart family. So yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, we're talking. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's trash, but go ahead. Oh, my God. Okay. Kidding, I, I did say that to troll I'm not, It's a good match. I'm, okay. It, it's okay. I'm not going to give the 2001 match a pass because it was in still the heat and big time era of its popularity. Hmm. Because guess what? Everything people loved. Okay, you put that match today, I think people don't like it. I would disagree. Now, I only, now I'm saying that not because I wouldn't appreciate it, but I think there are a lot. Okay, if you put that match on NXT, everybody would hate it. I, everybody okay. would hate it. Everybody would hate it, but you put that match on AEW, it's the best thing on earth. Guaranteed. Okay, that's also because there are people that think everything on AEW is the greatest thing ever. My point you're, is, uh, you're right. But if you're if you're asking me from an in ring perspective and the story that's being told in the three matches, I'm putting the 2001 match third. I mean, I get it. I, I get it. By the way, this is somebody who critiques AEW like to a fault because I have to. Because I, I don't want you to go ahead and come in here and because you've been around for a year and you're the best thing ever and you're going to go ahead and run WWE out of business. WCW couldn't run, out of, couldn't run out the WWF out of business. What makes you think say all elite wrestling will? That being said, my number three is NXT TakeOver Toronto. And I'll tell you the reason why. No, no, hold on. Before you go ahead and get your panties all over the bunch for a second, people. I haven't said anything. Oh, I know. I just saw you shaking your head. I saw you nodding your head. Let me be the first person to tell you that I think that the NXT TakeOver Toronto match is absolutely incredible. Um, WWE named it its best match of the year. I would say that it was definitely in the top five. Um, at both NXT and WWE, because I am very biased towards the AJ Styles-John Cena match at uh, SummerSlam that year. Um, and then also 
people seem to forget that Roman Reigns and AJ Styles had an amazing match at Extreme Rules. But that's nor here nor there. Um, and not to mention the Survivor Series match of Raw versus SmackDown was the tits. Those matches, including TakeOver Toronto, are all the best that 2016 had to offer. And mind you, that was some great stuff. I think for me is Toronto, TakeOver Toronto's match is so good. It's so good. But I don't know if it's the best NXT tag team match I've ever seen. I would have to tell you it's in my top three. I'd have to tell you it's in my top three, but I'm not 100% sure if I'm willing to go ahead and, you know, a gun is pointed at my head. You ask me what's my favorite NXT tag team match of all time. I'm not 100% sure I'm going to tell you the revival versus DIY in Toronto. I'm not sure. And it's, but it's so good that it made me rethink my list on several occasions this morning that I was just like, Am I making the right call by deciding to put this on three? And at the end of the day, I decided to just because from an emotional standpoint and from a quality standpoint, just a bit on the quality, just a smidge, and more on the emotional standpoint, the other two mean so much more to me. And, and I was able to just intertwine myself so much more on the other two for a variety of different reasons. And I know you're nodding your head over there. You're probably asking yourself, well, Jorge, if you don't think that this is the best tag team match NXT has ever put on, what do you think is the best NXT tag team match they've ever put on? I mean, there's a couple of undisputed era matches out there that are like slobber knockers. And then to me, I am a big fan of the War Raiders versus Aleister Black and Ricochet at NXT New York. Now, before you go ahead and freak out on that, because I know that you have all you. I mean, you talk about it all the time. Two guys who aren't a tag team hanging with a with a tag team that's in the top five on the planet should have no business being in your top five. But when you look at that match from a quality perspective, you might be actually know you, you might know what I'm talking about, right? But that shouldn't take away from the fact that Takeover Toronto was absolutely extraordinary. That match is extraordinary. That is probably the moment that Triple H said Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa are going to be the future of this, of this brand. That was probably the moment that, that, that he said that. So, yeah. All also, right. nodding his head. He's like, why did I come back this week? <laughs> so, I hate doing this. I really do. But my number two is Helen in the Cell 2018. It is. And I love that match. It's still, it is, it's my favorite tag team match of 2018, that's for sure. It's probably my favorite WWE tag match, at least in the last five years. I'm going to give myself that much of a buffer because actually, yeah, no, because the other match I'm thinking of is a six-man tag, so it doesn't count because it's not a tag team match. Yeah. Because... Elimination Chamber 2014 was Wyatt Shield. Yes. And that, that match was better. But that's I a mean, six-man tag. That doesn't count. That match so, is incredible, yeah. Um, that, that match helped start the rise of Drew McIntyre as a big freaking deal. 
It gave credibility to all four men in the match. It was one of the best stories being told in a tag team match I've ever seen. And it's only number two on my list. Okay. Well, I'm going with... I'm going with the Hell in a Cell 2018 match as well as my number two, and I'll tell you the reason why. Of course every- you picked the 2001 match as your number one. Hey, Go ahead. Calm down. Calm down. Hold on. I got Cause reasons. Because it's, it's, it's your boy, Triple H. Go ahead. <laughs> no, not just Go because ahead. it's my boy, Triple H. No, but uh, now nah, this match, hold on for one second. Let me. Th- there's a couple of reasons why I think that the Hell in a Cell 2018 match is one of my favorite is, – is number two on my list. One, you just said it. Drew McIntyre, this was this was the shot in the arm that he got. This was Vince finally waking up and saying, oh, this is the guy that I fired. Like, and thank God I rehired him back. One. Two, Dolph Ziggler just going ahead and proving to everybody who's a hater of him and be like, I'm still here and I'm still really damn good. Three, Dino came back after eight months after a staph infection that nearly killed him. His wife is on her first ever commentary on pay-per-view, mind you. And he goes ahead and absolutely kills it for the first time in seven and a half months. And he comes back yoked and he comes back looking better than he could have ever looked seven months prior. Like he, he, he was, he was just killing him. And then Seth Rollins was on the run of his life during this moment in time. Like everything Seth Rollins did couldn't be touched. Seth Rollins was at this moment in time, ascending to that number one status on the PWI. And this tag match had a crap ton of, had a crap ton to do with that. Um, He was the glue that held that entire match all together, him and Ziggler. And then McIntyre just was the, McIntyre and Dino were the icing on the cake. Um, That was easily the best tag match of 2018. I'm trying to think really hard. Ross, was there a match overall better on the main roster of WWE in 2018 that was better than this match. I, I'm having a hard time thinking of one. Yeah. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I mean, uh, made the, I mean, Samoa Joe and AJ Styles had a couple of bangers. They had a couple of real bangers. They actually had a pretty good match on this pay-per-view in and of itself, but off the top of my head, I can't think of many matches that were better than this match. Um, um, wait, hold on. Uh, the WrestleMania 34 mixed tag was a really good match. This is true. That match was up there, and I was going to say Brock Lesnar and Daniel Bryan really did something special at Survivor Series month, a month and a half later. Um, um, you're saying just main roster, or you're saying main in roster. general? Ma- okay. Main roster, because there was some good stuff in NXT. I mean, let me let me be very clear on that. I'm pretty sure Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano were stealing the show in 2018. Um, what did you think of Becky versus Charlotte at Evolution? Becky versus Charlotte at Evolution. I, I've told you this before. I'll say it to you again. It's one of the best women's matches of all time. So, um, oh, yes. so 2018 was definitely a year for really good NXT matches. Yes. Yes. It was. Um, um, but, but if, if you're, if you're asking me, Okay. This match, I'll tell you this, this match stood up with anything that NXT put out that year. Easily. Easily. Um, I'm actually really surprised you didn't put the... Yeah, I was making sure that that was on the show. Um, Rollins and Miz had a really good match in 2018, did they not? Yeah, 
they, they did. It was the only thing that was legitimate that happened at that year's backlash. Okay. <laughs> Who main evented wait, backlash wait, that wait. year? Roman Reigns. Uh, yes. That was one of the many times that you picked Samoa Joe to win the uh, world title. Good job. I did pick Samoa Joe to beat AJ Styles at Hell in a Cell, didn't I? You sure did. <laughs> Samoa, sure Joe did. Is, Samoa Joe has screwed me so much. And I still love right. the guy, but he, man. Yeah, uh, so, anyway, so the Hell in a Cell Samoa, 2018 match is absolutely incredible, and I love it. All right, so here is why uh, the two out of three falls match between DIY and the Revival is my number one. First of all, uh, it's the best tag team match NXT has ever put on. It's not even close. That's my opinion. Um, as a complete story, as and I teased this earlier, as a three-act system, it was perfect. Um, it showed that even though the Revival were probably still the better team... It showed the true story of the underdog team that had to do it themselves. <laughs> and truly showcased. And again, NXT was well established by this point, obviously. But look, this just showcased how different things can be when you treat tag team wrestling well. And look, I am not expecting a WrestleMania to be main evented by a tag team match ever again. Probably, nor should it be. I understand that, and I accept that. WrestleMania what I am saying, would have been the exception, but I get what you mean. But what I'm saying is that when this company, or any other company, wants to take tag team wrestling seriously and puts the right pieces together and tells a good story, and gets me involved as a fan to every single moment of a two-out-of-three-falls match, you've done something really special. And, again, the sequencing, the timing, I was... I, I never... I got lost in this match in a good way. And I know that every match we've talked about, I've been just glued to it because I've I've... And I've watched these matches before. But the two out of three falls match between everything else involved totally got me into this stage as a wrestling fan where I'm just like, wow. Wow. Like, it didn't have to be over the top and crazy. It just had to tell a good story. And by the way, by this point in their careers, it's not like any of those four guys were cutting great promos. Right? Like, Tommaso Ciampa was not cutting great promos at this point. True, and Gargano sure still as, can't cut a great promo. As sure as hell wasn't Gargano, and the Revival didn't have to cut promos. They just beat people up. That's what made them so great. So, when you the take... The they have a personality, I think, is a very, very beautiful blessing. I look when you when you take something very simple and tell a beautiful story out of it it's special and it's why it's number 1 for me 
I mean, I'm not here to tell you that, you know, TakeOver Toronto sucks because on the contrary, I think that match is absolutely incredible. I think the Hell in a Cell 2018 is absolutely incredible. There was something in the water that night on May the 21st of 2001 in San Jose, California that just all the stars aligned, Ross, with the exception of, you know, the only thing that wasn't aligned is Triple H's quad. That's, that's, in a, that's not a joke. That's just reality. The fact that this match is still so highly regarded after the fact, and maybe, I don't know, Ross, maybe it's the fact that people, maybe I'm getting enamored at the fact that Triple H, because he tore his quad and finished the match, that's why this thing is absolutely such legendary, so legendary. But then at the same time, I think about it, this match, 10, 11 minutes in, before he tore his quad, this match was on, a, this match was on its way to being some of the, one of the best things we had ever seen in the history, in the 25-year history of Monday Night Raw. I, I, so, so you know, I don't think that it's right for me to go ahead and say, oh, maybe it was the fact that Triple H tore his quad and that made this match legendary because he finished the match with it. No, I think that adds to it. I think that definitely adds to it. The fact that he was such a fighter, the fact that four of the best wrestlers of all time, not the four best wrestlers of their generation, not the four best wrestlers of that decade, not the four best wrestlers of that era. I'm talking about from top to bottom, when you ask yourselves who is in the top 15 professional wrestlers ever, not just in the WWF, but ever, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, and Triple H are the names that come into those top 15 nearly every single time. And they pulled off magic. Actually, let me be let me be very perfectly clear. Let me pull off my Stephen A. Smith here. All three of these matches were absolute magic. There was just a tad bit more magic in this one because what they did in 13 minutes compared to Rollins and McIntyre and Ambrose and Ziggler getting 25 and then DIY and the Revival getting 22, they made this match like tantalizingly good in 13 bro like do you know how good you have to be to make a match be like stand the test of time in 13 minutes like it's it's unreal now i will tell you this i will finish off with this in the same vein that i stated that the young bucks versus the golden lovers i would not describe as a perfect match i will tell you that if there was anything close to a perfect tag team match that I've ever seen, the two-man power trip versus Jericho and Benoit is about as close to it as it could possibly get. But it's still not perfect. It's still not perfect because, again, it goes to my description of, to me, it is so incredibly hard to dictate what a perfect wrestling match is. It's near impossible. It's near absolutely impossible. But the three matches that we discussed today, the three matches that I discussed with through the table back in July, every single tag match Ross has ever discussed in the two years of this podcast, they are fantastic. It's true. Oh my gosh, what a marathon! I, I just this the show I was, I was so very much looking forward to, and I have so much passion when it comes to mm-hmm. tag team wrestling in general, and. Uh, it's been it's been quite a ride, to yeah. say the least. And uh, I'm glad we finally got to this show. Two and years, man. And I'm glad that 
I'm glad that I got to rewatch some of my favorite tag team matches of all time. And eventually, eventually I've got other goals of other matches I want to cover on this show um, that involve lots of different companies. And eventually we hopefully we'll get to there. Well, we are. Yeah. But I also hope that uh, eventually we get back into some semblance of uh, covering the current product, because I can tell you right now, and I, I don't want to, dive deep into this because we are at the end of the show but yeah there is that crazy rumor out there that there's a certain superstar whose contract is going to be up in january of 2021 and the rumors are circulating that he's gonna leave who is that person who do you think is that person ricochet oh yeah he's leaving if 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 if, if it's him if i'm ricochet i'd leave he signed a deal in January of 2018. A lot of those deals are three-year deals. Uh, he apparently denies it, by the way, that he's leaving, uh, which means what's probably going to happen is Ricochet's probably going to get a massive push. He'll re-sign, and then they'll just bury him again for three years. Well, I hope that's not the case because I think Ricochet is absolutely extraordinary. I think we've talked about that man a bunch on this podcast, how much we appreciate his work. Um. Obviously, Ricochet would be an easy fit to almost any company he goes to. 100% um, I will. I will tell you right now, as I've said this many times before, I think AEW needs to be very selective in who they bring in. I am not saying don't bring in Ricochet. What I'm saying is at least think about it because you don't want to be the company that just signs everybody. Because then you're going to have too many people yeah. and you're not going to have enough TV time and like everybody's going to get lost. And you're trying to push your own guy, well, your own guys in question in quotations. You're trying to push certain guys that you've been building for a year. You don't just bring in guys that are ex WWE guys and do nothing with them, or at least I hope you don't. I so, agree. so we'll see. More news to come on that. I just figured I'd bring that out because that's been the hot rumor for at least the last. Uh, four probably, days, probably. Well, four days, but it's really amplified in the last six to twelve hours. So, um, so anyway, that is our show this week. Um, the plan is for Jorge and I to be uh, guest guest uh, hosting or guest partaking in another episode of Pops and Box Office Flops, doing Dukes of Hazard. So uh, that should be coming up here soon. What is coming up next week, sir? So next week we are, you know, it's pay-per-view extravaganza all over again. We got Clash of Champions preview show next week. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, so let me go ahead and give you guys the lineup really quick because we I'm actually really proud of this lineup coming up in the next month and a half. So uh, with the exception of more pay-per-views. But we've got the Clash of Champions preview show followed by the Clash of Champions review show. And then the very first episode of October, Ross and I are doing – what I think I, I, I'm actually really stoked about this. We're going to be doing our uh, AEW year in review um, that, which I'm very, very excited for. I know Ross is very excited for, it. and I'll, I know that there's a lot of you who listen to us that are pretty stoked. The fact that we're going to devote another episode to all elite wrestling. And yeah, but again, because we're wrestling fans or because we're fair people and because we want to go ahead and talk about the great things that they're doing, but we also want to go ahead and critique them on the things that we feel like they need to work on. Because there are some things that they need to work on, but they're overall, that I, I if you had to ask me what grade would you give them in the first year of existence, I'd give them a solid A plus. That that's just reality, and you'd have to be stupid not to give them an A plus. 
And then uh, the second episode of October, uh, finally, after months and months of planning this, uh, Matt from Wrestling with Respect is supposed to join us. We're going to go ahead and do a special on women's wrestling, so that should be very fun. We might get a guest appearance from his wife, his co-host, Jenny. Um, I think their baby boy is like two months old now, so shout out to them. But uh, So they'll be coming on with us in the second episode of October. And so that's currently our lineup right now. Um, and then, of course, uh, Hell in a Cell is supposed to be happening sometime in the midst of, in the middle of October there. So that's going to be another show. And Ross and I have a few TDT Classic Series that we are currently keeping close to the chest right now because we're trying to go ahead and figure out the details on that. But uh, before we go, Ross, share with the people what has been your favorite thing about doing this show with me for the last two years. Close us out on that. I don't, I don't mean to put you out on the spot, but... Honestly, it's, well, up until COVID, uh, just being reinvigorated into really diving into the product again. I took my hiatus after SummerSlam. It was a month. I then watched Hell in a Cell that had a no contest finish, and my faith was not totally restored at this point, but at least I got to see one of the greatest tag team matches of all time. And so, if anything, it's gotten me to not only appreciate um, wrestling in general and me being a fan, but me being able to talk about it and use this as a platform to be able to rant and yell and rave and be able to talk to people that actually listen to the show and appreciate what we're doing and just know that there's more of us than I thought there was. So... Well, I couldn't agree with you more, buddy. Uh, I, have, I have adored every single aspect of this part uh, of this program. We have put in a lot of – I mean, we really have been putting in a lot of work for the last two years on this program, like no joke. Lots lots of late-night calls, lots of uh, Pizza Hut, lots of Costco pizza over at my house, um, lots of uh, failed recordings because of stupid equipment, um, cool stuff, um, Ross throwing pens at the wall, going off on Kofi Kingston. Ross crying because Drew McIntyre won the Royal Rumble, um, that, which is a fact, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not making fun of him. That is a fact. The man got teared up, and I don't blame him because I did too. Um, that was a very emotional day for a lot of sports fans all over the world. Let me just be completely honest on that. But, um, yeah, man, just us, us putting out a quality product that I don't think a lot of people realize we were capable of doing together. I think is the most proud thing about this program to me. Not that anybody ever asked me, nobody, nobody texted me or messaged me and said, Hey, J-Man, what's been your favorite part about doing this thing for two years called TDT, this little project? And so everything has been my favorite part about it. Everything, every single aspect, showing up to the studio with Ross, bringing him food and, and then just us having a kick butt time. I was having a kick, kick butt time. It's been a pleasure. That is going to do it for our two-year anniversary show on the Double Turn Wrestling Podcast. For the J-Man, I'm Boss Ross, and we will catch you on the flip side.